This is a Restless Interview. Welcome back to Restless, a postmortem on the young, restless, and reformed. And sometimes we even servant lead our wives, don't we, Pastor Michael? Yes, yes, we do. Uh, in fact, we're going to talk about servant leadership today. We're jumping back in to the middle of our interview with Aaron Wren of The Masculinist. So uh, this is where I'm supposed to say, let's do that. And it starts. So Aaron, you you write The Masculinist yeah. and you already mentioned that sex and gender is an area with the new Calvinists that you're that you critique. Tell us about the masculinist. Tell us about this kind of critique you're talking about. All right. Well, the masculinist started in 2016 as a monthly email newsletter. It was sort of sort of an underground uh, an underground sensation, if you will. It had a lot of readers, but it was something I was doing on the side. Uh, while I was doing other things, I really didn't promote it. It didn't even have a website. But as of about six months ago, I've sort of taken the thing uh, more public. So I now have a website at themasculinist.com. We do blogging, we do podcasts, we do um, uh, we, you know, live, uh, live YouTube interviews. Uh, you know, I'm doing more media. And really, uh, you know, what, I, what I saw was that uh, you know, the church was not really doing a great job of reaching men. But at which I think is pretty kind of well, it's kind of this perennial hand wringing thing, you know, for a, for a very long time. But what was new and unique, I think, about that moment was that these sort of secular men's gurus started to emerge that were attracting hordes of young men. Jordan Peterson became the most famous, uh, and you know, when I started, Jordan Peterson, you know, was you know wasn't really you know a, a huge factor, but even then, I would notice, you know, he had a YouTube page where he would give two hour plus lectures on Genesis, the book of Genesis. Like he has like, here's my series on Genesis, several lectures, two hours long each with a couple hundred thousand views on it. I'm like, there are what, 200 something thousand people are, are spending two hours watching this guy talk about the book of Genesis. And, and so there was this, this big, I realized these people were actually getting at something. And one of the things they were getting at was just a truer model of you know, what I would call intersexual dynamics. And the contrast I always, the, that I always like to use is what, you know, the new Calvinists will tell you women want and what, uh, you know, I, I wasn't per se targeting the new Calvinists, but they're certainly in this general uh, kind of general bucket. And what, you know, the Jordan Petersons and these, these secular men's gurus would tell you. So, you know, uh, Matt Chandler, for example, w- would say, and he wrote this in Desiring God, I keep saying it, godliness is sexy to godly people. So the idea is, you know, women are attracted to men who are on fire for God and, you know, that the, who are servant leaders, right? They, they affirm, they support, uh, you know, they serve their, 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 their wife and their children. You know, they're conscientious, they're kind, they're all these things. Uh, Jordan Peterson, the, the whole idea that kindness is the greatest kindness is the greatest aphrodisiac in marriage that Don Carson said, that's, that's a classic statement. And um, Jordan Peterson says, girls are attracted to boys who win status competitions with other boys. <laughs> and like, oh, well, actually that explains a lot more about the world very, very clearly. It's like, oh, that explains why, you know, when you were in high school, uh, you know, the women and the cheerleaders, the cheerleaders wanted to be with the captain of the football team right, for example. And 
so I, I think that what we, what we see is, you know, these, these secular guys, many of whom were frankly, you, you know, attempting to use this knowledge for kind of evil ends. I wouldn't put, uh, I wouldn't put Peterson in that, uh, but, you know, many of the, you know, say there's this pickup artist community would be one of the many communities out there. Uh, you know, they're like, well, here, let me tell you how to, <laughs> let me tell you how this works. Uh, but, you know, all of them are kind of using this, and this, this stuff is very simple stuff that's, you know, validated in kind of the social sciences and psychology. You could go read uh, Scott Yenner's book, The Recovery of Family Life, which is an academic book by a, you know, a tenured professor that goes through many of these these things. And, oh, yeah, by the way, women are attracted to power and status, um, confidence and charisma, uh, you know, appearance and style, uh, money. Those things drive attraction. And things like godliness have nothing to do with attraction. <laughs> it really doesn't. I mean, godliness is not sexy. You go to the church. Why is it that the women are more interested in the, in the worship leader than in the parking lot attendant? You know, those, those sorts of things. Uh, it really has nothing to do with their, their godliness. It's sort of, they sort of conflate two things. You know, what drives attraction on the one hand with what makes someone a, you know, good quality marriage prospect on the other. So there's, there's kind of two separate things that you have. I think as a guy, you could all realize there are women that you might find attractive that you think, ah, that, that, that's not somebody I'd want to marry. There's also people who say, oh, she's like, she's like a great girl, but I'm not attracted to her. And the ideal is you want to have both. You want to have someone you're attracted to and who is, um, you know, who is also like great marriage quality. Of course, so godliness is very important, right? I, I'm not disparaging godliness, but godliness by itself does not drive attraction. And so you see these guys uh, making a lot of things, statements like that that are just kind of not true. Also, the the complementarian gender system, um, you know, largely, you know, I'm not a big fan of it in a lot of ways. Um, they 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 basically sort of nominally affirm things like male headship in the home, but they in in essence redefine it to mean the opposite of what an a normal person would think that means. And again, the idea is if you're the if you're the if you're the husband and father, your, your role is to be a servant leader, right? You're to be the servant of all, and so it, it sort of redefines a way, um, redefines a way leadership. They did so they've sort of like you know undermined that. Uh, that's another one, and it's very clear they don't. Um, you know, they they you'll notice they rarely ever uh, make any statement that could be interpreted as. Um, talking about women's sin or, or women being accountable for some wrong. They beat men up, you know, to the end. And my, my, you know, the one I always like to cite, there's a huge, uh, huge movement called Promise Keepers from a while back, you know, aimed at, aimed at men, but nobody ever asked women to keep their promises, right? There's no, there's nobody, you know, women initiate 70% of all divorces, by the way. Um, it's well known, well established that women are overwhelmingly the people who've, who've who initiate divorces, you'll never, you'll never even hear that statistic from these guys. So you'll search in vain for even that knowledge. And so there's a long range of things you can go through, right? J John Piper, when he talks about uh, women in combat, being allowed in combat, has to tie himself into a pretzel to somehow blame men for being too cowardly to fight. And that's why they're shoving women out to the front lines, which is, uh, you know, I think quite a quite, um, uh, quite inaccurate picture of the realities of the dynamics around, around, you know, why, why women are in combat. So there's just a whole slew of things uh, that they are, you know, that they're wrong on, on that. It, they're, 
I think they're very, they're very bad on the gender point. So everyone in our audience, especially the men have been told to be servant leaders. Can you maybe just kind of zoom in on what you mean by that kind of even flipping the idea that complementarians say they're defending, which is male headship in the church and the home? Well, I mean, if you just look at, um, you know, for example, uh, the, the example they like to use is, well, Jesus washing the, uh, the disciples' feet. You know, so Jesus said, I, I didn't come to, to be served, but to serve, to give my life, you know, up, you know, you know, give my life over them. And I'll say, look at him. He's foot, you know, he's the leader. He's, you know, he's the God man, as they like to say, and he's washing the feet of his disciples. What they don't say is none of his disciples or followers got to define how he was going to serve them. In fact, in that example, which, you know, it's in Keller's marriage book. It's in a lot of them. It's like, Peter doesn't want Jesus to wash his feet. And he essentially has to order, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. So one, this idea of, okay, be a servant leader. Who defines the service that's to be provided? And who, and then who determines whether you're doing a good job at that? These are some of the things that are kind of, kind of silent, um, you know, and they use these sorts of, um, you know, sorts one. So one of you, you know, I know Keller's material by far the best. So I, I got to kind of go back to him. There's nothing unique uh, about his, you know, it's like, are you going to use your headship to, to, to please yourself? Or are you going to use it to, to serve your wife and kids? So it's a, it's a kind of a dichotomy when the reality is those are not the only two options. That's like saying, are you with us? or Are you with the terrorist? You know, when it comes to invading Iraq or something like that, the reality is that, uh, there are other options. For example, you could be leading your household in the service of mission uh, for the kingdom, which is what, you know, when Tim Keller made the decision to leave Westminster Seminary and go plant the church, Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York, he didn't do it to please himself or his wife and kids. He did it on mission. And I think we see, and in, in actually, I, I think his life is a great example. Uh, I always use him as a great, he is a great example of Christian manhood and that he went into New York City when it was a war zone, when the PCA's previous church planning attempt had failed, when three, four other people had turned it down, when his wife thought he was crazy to want to do this thing, they got three kids. And he's like, we're going in. And, you know, we're going in because this is an important mission. And then he and his wife are actually on mission together in doing that. And so I, I think, but this idea that like, you know, th there's, there's kind of this choice. Again, that's just one of the ways that they, they, they sort of use this false dichotomy. Do you want to serve yourself or do you want to serve you like your wife and kids? Well, there's many other things uh, that we could be doing. And so I think that if you look, you know, if you look at, um, if you look at the relationship between say Christ and the church, uh, it's, it's not what, you know, they think of as a servant, you know, what's described as a servant leader, I think in these, uh, in these complementarian theologies. In fact, I was very struck, uh, by, uh, you know, the, the concept of moralistic therapeutic deism that uh, Christian Smith, and I can't remember his co-author, uh, that they, they came out where they studied, you know, they studied kind of evangelical youth and found that they sort of um, believed in this thing called moralistic therapeutic deism. It's, you know, it's, it's God loves you. He wants you to be happy. He wants you to be a good person, but he, he's not especially involved uh, in the world or in your life. Uh, unless you kind of need an exception, you need some help. And I think they just, they, characterize God in moralistic therapeutic deism as a sort of uh, 
cosmic butler and divine therapist. And that is essentially the role of the husband in complementarianism today. Interesting. He's, he's sort wow. of like a butler and a therapist. You know, he's supposed to be like an emotional support for his wife and kids. And he's supposed to be kind of like helping out and doing what they want. But, you know, he doesn't have any agenda at all. You look at Mark Driscoll. He's like, well, guys, you might have to be giving up all your hobbies. You might have to be giving up all your friends. You know, men are like trucks. They drive straighter under a load. Or there's a famous clip from Matt Chandler. Why are you guys going to bed with so much energy? Why aren't you completely wrung out from, you know, so it goes, you know, you could just Google that, just Google that phrase and you'll be able to easily find this video from, from Matt Chandler talking about this. Their vision of marriage is so unappealing. Like why would any guy want to sign up for it? You know, it, it essentially means becoming a, you know, a doormat and nothing. And, um, and so I'm, you know, I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's an accurate or, um, you know, or appealing vision of, of manhood uh, in, in a lot of ways. And, and again, and much of it, it, you know, has little to do with, you know, a theological complementarianism per se, but merely the way that that is taught and sort of instantiated uh, in the world. Uh, and so you, you sort of see that, you know, another, another famous, you know, there's a lot of ways you, you could just start asking questions about this. So like one of them is, um, you know, a woman can do anything an unordained man can do. Uh, you'll hear that quip a lot. And it's like, well, does the Bible actually say that a woman cannot be the president of a denomination? <laughs> you know, I, my wife, when um, she was in a, in a PCA church uh, one time, uh, she was on the pastoral search committee. They wanted to make her the chairman of the pastoral search committee. And their, their explicit rationale was, since the Bible doesn't say a woman can't chair the pastoral search committee, uh, then that's a role a woman can do. And we should explicitly seek to place a woman into that role. Sure. So it was sort of, uh, it was explicitly stated as that was the rationale. And so, you know, again, I just take it back and is really the hermeneutic of scripture that anything the Bible does not explicitly in black and white, no wiggle room say we can't do is permitted. Is that, is that a hermeneutic? You know, the same people who say that, then go to the Old Testament and use the example of Daniel praying over the sins of his people to create some massively expansive theology of corporate responsibility for, you know, historic racial injustice. And like, they just had, it's, it's, it's a, you know, you know, it's sort of the, you know, hermeneutic, opportunistic hermeneutics on how they talk about these things. And it's like, it's very obvious. One of the things that's very obvious in this new Calvinism movement is it, there are the people who are involved in it, uh, who are followers of them, like they're sort of like fanboys. They're sort of fanboys, these people. And there's almost no actual substantive, you know, analysis of what these people are saying by, um, by kind of the flock, if you, if you want to call it that, or, or any, anybody else for that. But, and the people who criticize them, Right, the people who might criticize them are predominantly going to be like egalitarians or other from people from other sorts of tribes, um, you know. And so I think that there's there's too much of a fan, there's too much of a fanboy mentality, you know. And I would have described myself as a Tim Keller fanboy at one point. I really just thought he was like, you know, he walked on water. There was nothing he could do wrong. And I'm like, well, you know, that's not that's not actually true. He's a, he's a human being like the rest of us, and you know, there's a whole lot of things that I would just tell you he, he's 
excellent that he got right. But that doesn't mean I have to agree with every single thing he does. Right. And you often see that you'll often see with these people that if you criticize, somebody will criticize one of these new Calvinist superstars and like an army of fanboys comes out and starts getting on your case. How dare you? That's slanderous. That's this, that's that. It's like, what's going on people. (laughs) And the truth, the truth of the matter is if you actually take, for example, a marriage book, a marriage sermon series, and really do a substantive and critical analysis of what is saying, you will see that actually it's, it's not that great. I mean, you can, you can take it apart without any real theological training just by um, looking at things like, well, how, how do they character, what are the examples of characterizations of men and characterizations of women in this book? And how do they talk about the various genders? And what you discover is, oh, there are actually zero negative characterizations of women in these books and like several and numerous negative characterizations of men. You could just do analysis like that. What sorts of illustrations do they tell from their own marriage? You know, you know, do they ever tell a story where their wife was unambiguously at fault and doing something wrong? And no, you never hear, you know, you rarely ever hear that. So it's like, you can just go through these. And, and I think this probably, they, they are more substantive but I think that their actual argumentation is much weaker than is commonly believed. Most of the time, these, these people in the new Calvinist movement um, are seen as so, you know, such geniuses is because their acolytes are fanboys and no one has ever really, you know, applied a truly critical lens um, to what they're saying. Uh, so that's one of, the th- one of the things I would say about them. It is. It seems uh, almost too good to be true that they they paint such an unappealing picture of marriage, as you said, and then they praise to the to the nth degree singleness. Yeah, yeah. That's that's um. You know, it's it's a great example. That's well, it's like you know again they they're trying to. This is this is the cultural engagement model. They've got a lot of singles in their pews, particularly in these urban churches, and what do you tell them? Well, telling them they should get married, we're never going to do that, right? Uh, you, you know, um, so, you know, it's like they, they create these, like, you know, affirmations of singleness. Yeah, but, you know, I mean, they, they, if you just uh, look at these marriage books sometimes. I, you know, Russell Moore, I use the example of Russell Moore's book, The Storm-Tossed Family, I think it is. It's like, you just look at the cover and it's like a house being tossed around on the waves and like, oh, yeah, I want to sign up for this, right? <laughs> and I do think there's a sense in which, uh, you know, pastors do disproportionately see the downsides of family because they're always being called on when there's been an affair or when there's problems in the marriage. So they get in a very unrepresentative sample of family life. I think, you know, you don't have to argue that they're being nefarious here. I think that they just see up close and personal the the traumas in families a lot. Uh, But I always say, no matter how much they extol the virtues of singleness, they're not trading their family for all the gold in Fort Knox. And, um, and so, yeah, it's uh, yeah, you're you're right about that. And and, and honestly, they've they've um, you know the, their inability to talk, um, you know, to kind of like you know you know kind of level with people on the realities of long term singleness, you know, is um, you know is kind of I think hurt a lot of people. Yeah, I see this a lot. Uh, you know, the the example I always think of is I think I first heard it from Tim Keller, but I've heard it a lot of other places too. Is you know, Paul says. 
you know, wives submit in everything to your husbands. And then I hear from this group, um, you know, submit if it's a really big decision and the man has the 51% of the vote in those really big decisions uh, in the household and that that's about it. Right. And uh, yeah, like that's, that does not, uh, that does not seem quite right when you're, you know, reading the two next to each other, uh, read that marriage book next to Ephesians five. And it's like, wow, this is not quite lining up how I think it should. Yeah. I mean, I, to be quite honest, I, you know, I, you know, I, I like some of the egalitarian um, people better in a lot of ways because I, I, they're very direct, open, honest, transparent about what they think. You know, you're, you don't have to read their stuff like you're parsing a Bill Clinton speech to try to find out what is this really saying when you start taking it apart piece by piece by piece. And, and again, I, I think the, these new Calvinist people are master communicators, master rhetoricians. Every, the words that they use, the way that they describe things, the language, it's extremely intentional. It's extremely intentional. And some of them, they you know, even use what you might call a bespoke vocabulary. The way that they talk about things, they do not use kind of traditional evangelical or other Christian categories or words to talk about things because, uh, you know, they want to kind of have their own kind of view. They want to kind of have their own view of it. And again, rhetoric is not bad. And there's rhetoric is a tool. We should all seek to be good at rhetoric. Uh, but I think in some of these cases, you know, it's, it's really over rhetoricized. How much of this is just coming out of the, the, you know, felt need to, you know, reach people in a city or something like that, right? Where you have, I, I want to, you know, like you were saying, um, you know, uh, earlier about, uh, you know, Tim Keller goes to this city. There are certain ways you have to talk. There are certain ways that you want to, you know, communicate these things. How much of is it, is it just, you know, this milieu that you're in, you're trying to find the language that won't be so upsetting, that won't be so, so uh, jarring to those that you're talking to. And so you need to, you want to use words like, you know, uh, servant leadership instead of headship, which can sound jarring, especially in a more feminized culture. That, and they are, they're trying to maintain a, a relational structure, as we've already described, across denominational lines, political lines, right? And so you, it feels that like there is a, a sense where they have to be very careful in their speech. Well, you do have to be very, I mean, here's the thing. We can sit here on this podcast and say whatever we want, because one thing is our audience is, you know, you know, not as big as their audience. When you have millions of people, right, the, the bigger your audience, the more care that you have to take in what you say, right? You just have to, you have to level up right? In terms, in terms of what you're doing. I do think some of it, like, I think, you know, I think when Keller came to New York, you know, in their description of how they did that, that's like a master class in figuring out how to come in, come into this new environment and very effectively evangelize that environment. Like in the nineties, you know, my understanding is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people were sort of being converted to Christianity there. Their services, you know, could be half, half people who weren't Christian. They were coming in to see it it was a very effective strategy, you know, I think for that era. And again, with the, the thing with the new Calvinism most though, as times change, you, your contextualization, if you want to call it that, needs to be recontextualized. And it's very hard to recontextualize. 
And that's why, you know, I think if you, if you listen to the stats, it's like almost all converts are being made by young church plants. And, uh, you know, that's one of the justifications you hear of a church plant. Well, why is that? You create a new church plant and it's a contextualized to the realities of the moment when it's, when it's planted. Then, you know, 20 years later, the world has changed, but that church is still contextualized to its old model. Very difficult, um, very difficult to, to reinvent yourself. Just like cities. I mean, a lot of cities, they go through a boom phase, then they go into decline. They, fight, they struggle to reinvent. A lot of these Rust Belt cities have never reinvented themselves. Churches are like that too. It's not just the failure rate of new church plants, which is extremely high, you know, comparable to startups. It's that even the successful church plants enter the decay phase, you know, after a generation in many cases, and you have to essentially figure out how to recreate, you know, and refound that church again and recontextualize to a new scenario. And I think it's much rarer to see churches, you know, is how many sort of conservative, well-known conservative churches are there in the United States that are even, uh, that are a hundred years old or even 75 years old. Very few uh, churches um, that are like, that are like, you can, you can name some, you could say like Moody Bible Church has kind of been, then there are, you know, 10th Presbyterian would be another one. But it's one of these things where like, everybody wants to look at the, the mainline churches to say, ah, oh, see, they're dying and this and that. Well, they're also older. And, you know, when, uh, you know, when Redeemer Presbyterian Church is 125 years old and, you know, and not 30 years old, will it still be going strong uh, as well? So I do think there's this, this element of, um, you know, the, the contextualization works. It works for a season, right? Something works for a season and then it stops working. And it's like, it's like what I'm doing you know, it's, it's only going to have, there's only a limited shelf life in what I'm doing. And the Aaron Wren style is going to, it's going to succeed at some level. It's, you know, it has succeeded at some level. And the question is, you know, I'm not going to be able to keep doing what I'm doing forever. If I don't reinvent it or something doesn't happen, then, you know, it's going to, it's going to go into a decline as well, because the world is, the world is just changing. Uh, you can't keep playing the oldies forever. And so, yes, I think that these guys came in and, um, you know, certainly, uh, in a lot of ways, evangel you know, evangelistic motives in developing it. Um, again, I do think New Calvinism, you know, as itself as a movement, had a power politics component to it from the beginning. I think uh, that's a good way to look at it. Uh, but again, that doesn't mean it's nefarious. But it does mean that again, it was a product of a specific era, and as the eras change it becomes less effective and it would have to be somewhat reinvented. And that's very difficult to do. Certainly as long as kind of the, the same leadership, it usually takes changes in generational turnover and leadership and other things like that. Uh, it's sort of like, maybe it's like a, a basketball team or a football team is really successful. And then that legendary coach retires. It usually takes two or three coaches you got to go through before you find somebody that can rebuild the program successfully again. I think there's probably something, something similar. This is what I appreciate uh, a lot about your analysis is that uh, you have very like, sharp and pointed critiques, which have come out, uh, but scattered all through here. You've also uh, been very quick to mention, hey, this is what worked. This is what was good. This is, you know, th these are the, you know, the things that these people did really well and why it works, right? Why, right. why it did work for them. 
Yeah, I mean, I think this idea that there is this sort of, um, uh, you know, again, there's this fanboy mindset that you have to be in a hundred percent praising the people that you're, you know, the kind of tribal leaders of whatever tribe it is that you're in. Uh, and that's not, you know, that's not healthy, you know, and you, you invariably run into, you know, your problems when there's, when there's insufficient accountability and sort of pushback and, and critique. And, um, and so I, I try to be, I try to be as maximally fair, uh, you know, as, as I can be, uh, on these things. I mean, one of the advantages of um, that I have is I'm not part of the movement uh, itself and I don't aspire to be, right? I'm not likely to be invited to speak at Gospel Coalition, you know, TGC 22 or whatever it is that's coming up. But you can um, still invite me if you're listening uh, and yeah, you're on the council. But, uh, you can still invite me to speak. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's one of those things where like, I, I don't aspire to join their club. And so, um, so I think that there's, there's, um, and, and that's a, that's a, that's also a limiting, that's also, a, you understand that I've made choices that limit me. If I were part of, or a member of one of these networks, you know, I would, my own profile would be dramatically boosted, but it would come, it would come with a price. And so there's a, there's a price to be paid in your strategies no matter what you do. And that's why you don't want to, you know, I don't think we need to put like all our eggs in, in any one basket. Um, so yeah, but I try to be, I try to be fair. And, um, and I guess psychologically and just as my personality, you know, I've, I'm very open to, you know, uh, you know, if I look at even the biggest name in any field and I think that they've got something wrong, I'm not afraid to say, I don't think this, I don't think this is right. And then, you know, in my newsletter, when I say that, you know, I'll put 4,000 4, words, you know, detailing, you know, why that is. It's not just, it. I'm not just making like half cock statements. There's like, you know, here's, here's an 18,000 word write up on somebody's marriage book that I got sitting in my files that I've never published. And, you know, there, there are, there are books. There's a book or two sitting on my hard drive that is material. That's just research material. That's never been published uh, about what I'm doing. So I, I try to, I try to make some, you know, serious investigations of these things. Well, we don't want to take any more of your time. This has been great. Uh, Aaron, before you leave, though, um, please point our listeners who, who may not already be following you, um, yeah, to your stuff where you, I mean, you talk about the history of conservatism, you talk about new Calvinism, sex, gender. Uh, yeah, tell them where they can find your material. Go to themasculinist.com and sign up for the newsletter. Uh, that's the number one thing to do. I have a once monthly newsletter that, um, you know, really goes into, into depth on a lot of these. There's also a podcast now, uh, which you can sign up for usually, you know, 15 to 30 minute episodes with me exploring uh, various aspects uh, of the world. Again, I did a series on kind of political conservatism. I'm going to be doing a series coming up on the, uh, the old WASP establishment, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant establishment. I just did a year-long research project on that, actually, and um, and getting uh, I wrote it up and got some uh, very good feedback on that. And um, so, um, you know, there's there's different things that I do. I try to I try to give people. You know, I come from a consulting background, and I like to equip people with frameworks and ways of thinking about the world that they can use to 
uh, make sense of it and kind of kind of plot strategy. And uh, that's one reason I think I, 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 you know, I've, I've always resonated with Tim Keller because he's an, he equips people in the same way with tools to think about the world. So I sort of aspire to be in that kind of model of uh, not necessarily always telling you, you must think like me, but sort of like this positive, neutral, negative framework, here are ways for you to think about the world, not the only lens on the world, but a lens on the world that you can use, you know, as a minister, or as a Christian, to think about how to live in the now. Great. Great. Well, I've been very helped uh, by your material, been reading for a few years now and have uh, greatly benefited from it. Um, again, you know, one of the things I appreciate about it is, you know, there are these, you know, uh, well thought out critiques and analyses of, you know, various movements, ideas that are out there. While at the same time, you do try to uh, use uh, what you have to uh, help to build up to, you know, give some practical, uh, you know, advice or even pass along practical advice that you come across. So, uh, so I've benefited from it. I'd recommend anybody uh, go check it out, themasculinist.com. Um, I don't think that you will, you will be disappointed. We just want to say a big thank you to Aaron Wren for coming on the podcast, discussing New Calvinism, Complementarianism, and the Masculinist. We've both been very uh, blessed by uh, the Masculinist and, and some of the work that Aaron's doing. So we really do uh, recommend that you go over and check out what he's doing. Um, I've been subscribed for a couple of years, and it has been uh, tremendously helpful and beneficial in my own in my own thinking and my own uh, lifestyle as well. So. Uh, Get over there. Make sure uh, make sure to subscribe to that newsletter.